there and welcome to the very first episode of the Best of Occupied for 2020. Uh, For those of you that have been listening for a while, each December we go through the best four episodes of the podcast from that year. Uh, This serves a number of purposes. One, it uh, gives me a chance to actually have some leave and enjoy some family time. But also it allows you guys to, if you haven't heard some of these episodes before, to to be introduced to the amazing content uh, that has come out in the year prior. So 2020 for me with a lot of the episodes was about... Uh, challenging myself to deepen my thinking or reflect on things that I've often taken for granted. Uh, And this very first episode was the absolute epitome of that. Uh, The episode I'm referring to is Unpacking Colonized Thinking. It was with Tupperichi and Jody Booth, uh, where we had a fairly in-depth discussion about uh, the colonized thinking and systemic racism that exists within the healthcare system. Now, both of these guys and myself, obviously, are, you'll hear in the episode, very Australian. Uh, so the context that we are discussing this within is obviously the Australian context, but you will find applicable matter um, that you can translate into whatever country that you are from. It is a, a very versatile episode and I encourage you to go into it with an open mind and and see what you can get out of it. So with all that said and done, enjoy the episode. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. I guess a brief overview of how, or the history that it was taught. So I went to, when was I in primary school? In the... Early 90s, well, most of the 90s was my primary school, sort of 91 to 97. I'm sure Jodie was similar. She'll be fine. A little, little bit before that, but let's not go there. <laughs> um, but the, the basic sort of history and the way it was framed uh, when I went to school was uh, the Europeans discovered discovered Australia. This is the, the words that were were used when we were taught, um, and they colonised Australia and built settlements and developed, uh, I guess, a, a westernised society in Australia. And it was, I remember reading some of the, I guess, probably kids' history books at the time, and they talked about the natives and the Aboriginals that were there, but it was in reflection, it was very much a sort of an us and them and the, the Western society sort of came and started this, this new, new colony in Australia and it, I guess, gave the Aboriginal people um, resources and taught them how to, uh, I didn't actually use this word, but I guess in a way assimilate with the culture that they were bringing with them. And I think up until your your presentation in Sydney, Terrapa. I, I mean, obviously, I had thought about 
the fact that that was a bit simplified. Um, but I'd never really thought on the deeper context of the fact that it was like a very us and them kind of story that's being presented mm. to, to kids. Um, what's, what would your, how, how does your, I guess, opinion or your, your view of that differ? Interesting. So, um, I guess that, uh, there's a lot of educators that sort of talk about, um, why curriculum is so important and the history of the education curriculum of Australia, right, is, is very much a Eurocentric, um, um, ethnocentric, um, uh, approach. And so you've got this history being taught from this perspective, um, that is one, it's, it's male. <laughs> Two, it's, it's, uh, very, um, from an, upper class, middle, uh, middle upper class sort of perspective. And it's based within a uh, Western context and it's generally got a religious sort of um, affiliations. And so naturally that is going to design the curriculum that's going to talk those particular principles and those particular values. And so it's not until now that we're starting to sort of um, go through the process of unpacking history and some of the stuff where people are sort of re-looking at certain um, uh, points in history like Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu um, around Aboriginal agricultural practices that we're starting to sort of question how this narrative of history is formed, but also then how do we put it into the education curriculum? And it hasn't necessarily always been the most um, uh, productive sort of conversation around history within Australia. And I think in um, the presentation there's this quote that I use that if it's not in the mind of the classroom, sorry, if it's not in the classroom, it's not in the Australian mind by Lester Rabinerigny. And so unless we're sort of teaching these particular um, uh, other perspectives or a perspective that is not the socially dominant perspective, we're going to miss this, this, this um, fantastic sort of overview and so what that has done, though, is it's led to, I guess, um, people coming out of this education system with this very Eurocentric, ethnocentric sort of um, view of history rather than um, – so if you were to go into um, school in the, in, the, in the 50s, you probably would have learnt around European history. And then probably around the 70s and 80s, we sort of moved into what is Australian history or what's um, – basically colonial history that um, uh, Captain Cook came and discovered Australia and um, um, the, the narrative which um, I guess you um, were um, participating in. And I was, I was a part of that process as well. I went through that. And that was started around the 1970s and then led into basically right up into the 1989 Australian Bicentennial Celebrations. And so that was a really look at what is our history, uh, who are we are as a country, and who do we want to be? And so it created this national idealization. And so Stuart McIntyre in his book, um, and uh, with a chapter in there by Anna Clark, uh, The History Wars, talks about this conflict of interest that one side was um, talking about, yes, yes, it's this colonial history and Captain Cook, and the other side was talking about, um, but what about um, Indigenous Australians that were here? And so there was sort of the terminology, the, the white blindfolds versus the black armbands. And so this view of Australian history became these two separate views of history. It was like what was Australian history and what was mm. Aboriginal history here in Australia. Because I think you know, like just for the, the, the 
not juxtaposition, but I guess the the tension in that discussion is that the Western view is very much that white people or Captain mm. Cook or the Dutch or whoever they're talking about at the time discovered this country mm. that Aboriginal people had been on for, I don't know the exact figure, it was mm. tens of thousands of yeah. years Between prior. Between 60 and, it was and 80, almost, years, yep. Yeah, that's, you know, mm. a little bit before yeah. <laughs> we got here. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, and... The the way it's written, and obviously it was very it was written by the people that you know colonized, that mm. just discovered, lack of a better term, that came here. Um, mm. it, their version that they've written almost negates that, mm. you know, mm. sixty to eighty thousand years prior. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because, There's no, yeah. I've I've never read even any sort of any kind of history that those people even tried to. Yeah. Learn. Yeah. And so that, they've never even had that conversation. conversation. And so that there's fantastic books out there that talk about this. Um, Bruce Pascoe, uh, um, sorry, um, his name Reynolds, Why Weren't We Told? And they talk about like, why weren't we told about this particular history? And so this narrative that we had of Australian history was very, very different from what was probably going on actually at that point in time. And so, um, uh, as a result, right, we, we don't have, this complete sort of background knowledge to be able to engage in these sort of conversations about um, uh, multiculturalism, about uh, social justice and, and equity and um, even um, uh, equity across genders and all the um, not-so-nice uh, isms that you have um, as a response to, like, racism, sexism and, and all, of those, all of those things. We, we aren't equipped with the background knowledge to be able to unpack those things and to talk about those things. It's not necessarily our fault. We're just a result of this education structure um, because mm. that was what those people at that point in time thought was going to be the most useful thing for everybody else to know. But we're sort of how they weren't able to predict what's going to happen in 50 years or 40 years down, down the track. And so yep. we don't, like, um, have a pedagogy to be able to teach this. And so that leads into, like, occupational therapists. We don't have a framework to be able to tackle these these issues. And so we've got to create this framework. I also think another thing that was interesting in, in retrospect, I didn't really sort of, well, I was a kid, so I didn't really know at the time, but the way and the language that was used to describe Aboriginal people very much seemed to be what was convenient for whoever was writing it at the time. So, you know, if there was people that wanted that land all for themselves, oh, then the Aboriginal gonna, people were often described as savages yeah, or natives. And, you know, it, right? it almost gave them permission to push these people off their, yeah. their land, their own land, so that they could have it. Um, Whereas, yeah, there was others that would refer to people as the Indigenous people and, you know, I've read things like they had interactions with them. I don't know how productive the interactions mm. were or how much effort was put into them. But mm. the it's a very mixed, and it, it depends on which part you're reading. Like the Western, the history books are very, they're, they're not consistent. Mm. They're, they're, they're different, different narratives for, I'm assuming, what would be the priorities of those European settlers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, sorry. And so it's, it's, there's a uh, author, uh, sorry, historian who's based in America, Ibram X. Kendi, and he wrote this fantastic book called Stamped from the Beginning. And he talks about the um, way that racist ideas were created. And so in that, he, he argues the fact that racist ideas and beliefs do not lead to oppression. 
they result from it. So um, you create this idea and construct of race to be able to justify being able to take resources, to be able to um, not necessarily um, do right by this other particular group, group of people. And so um, I think I said in the um, uh, speech that I, the um, note that I did there was that there um, was this creation of this idea and construct of, of race. And in that you had um, whiteness and you had mm. the opposite end of the spectrum, blackness. And so trying to basically create a structure in that you can, um, uh, I guess, potentially dehumanise people, um, um, take resources, take land um, for um, your own wealth and, and, and uh, accrual, basically. And so you had these Western colonial powers um, back in the 14th, 15th, 16th and um, 17th centuries um, uh, doing, doing um, creating this process and trying out ideas. And if those ideas didn't work, um, reinventing them and, and creating new ideas. And so in this book, Ibram X. Kendi talks about this 14th Portuguese chronicler who was commissioned by um, King Henry in, in Portugal to go and do a surveying of um, the not the country of Africa or at that point in time, but the many different nations that created up Africa. And so he um, uh, sent him to sort of go and uh, um, see what resources we could, we could um, um, uh, accrue or, sorry, acquire and bring back for the colonial powers. And so uh, when, he, when he went there, he rationalised or justified his um, taking of, of other humans and stating that they, like quoting here, they live like beasts, they had no understanding of good, but only knew how to live in bestial sloth. And so he's justifying um, this dehumanisation of people mm. for own economic wealth. And then that wealth doesn't necessarily translate into the people living on the streets and in those European countries. It translates into yeah. those powers and those few getting those resources. So um, in a sense, creating whiteness and the opposite end of the spectrum blackness for um, exploitation basically and so you've had this history and the structure and by the time australia was colonized right this was done like the portuguese chronicler was sent out there back in the 14th century and if you talk about 1776 when it's the first sort of uh, boats were out in sydney sydney cove you've had a full couple of centuries to get really really good yeah. at this process wow because one of the things I've often wondered is, uh, Mike, my background is in mental health and I often will talk mm -hmm. about stigma in mental health and how it mm -hmm. relates and how it can affect, uh, you know, people who might need to seek help for mental health but sometimes don't because of the stigma, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yep. But looking at how that stigma developed um, very much started anyway way back when, you know, mental health care started and mm. slightly different because this is kind of well documented the kinds of things that they used to do to people uh, in mental health, but that sort of gave rise to, you know, Hollywood movies and their mm -hmm. depiction of mental health. And that's how it's sort of, that's something that happened, you know, 200 years ago has kind of been continuously perpetuated mm -hmm. to the general public mm -hmm. as this is, this is what mental health looks like. Do you think 
and obviously that's like a, a true rendition that's been carried through. And but this is a, a a one-sided view of history, a one-sided Ooh. perspective of history. Absolutely. Does it does it work? Do you think it works? Like, I guess similarly to that stigma developing in that hmm. this this one side of your history is then you know obviously been integrated into the education system, and then it hmm. goes right through right through to where we are now as OTs and the models that have been developed and, you know, people that are yeah. developing these models may have had that education yeah. of, you know, our history or their history, whichever country they're in, yep. that kind yep. of thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it, it created this um, uh, sh- structure that sort of um, was founded upon on this particular view of, of history. And so that structure is going to be, based on those particular values, right? And so if you're teaching about this particular thing, then and if you're hearing about these particular things, then the things that are created in that society are going to be reflective of that. And so like your institutions, your organisations, your professions, your schools, your doctors, your um, police, your justice system and stuff like that is all going to be under that. And so that's what like when people talk about like um, what is and who is Australia, it's not necessarily talking about the historical context and injustice about it. It's about trying to support and further um, sustain those structures that benefit a few but don't necessarily benefit everybody. And so that concept of like when Australia was discovered, the justifications was that it was terra nullius, the Mm. legal definitions of no one's land. land. And so you've got these three sort of operating um, branches of this and um, uh, Ibram X. Tendi talks about it is it's the um, it's science, it's the state, and it's religion. And so trying to use the justification of religion or to do some not-so-nice things in the state and, and have sciences back it up. And so you've got creations of racist sciences, you've got the state creating legal uh, things to enforce the enslavement of other people and the dispossession of other people. And so when our constitution, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't included in that. And so our constitution is a founding document. So we weren't necessarily included in that. So we weren't included in the who's this system and structure is going to benefit for. And you look at the history of the white Australia policy and how um, in Australia it was to um, make sure that the socially dominant group was going to be Western European um uh, people, or Western European migrants, that upheld those particular values, that upheld the church, that upheld the state, that upheld those scientists, their scientists' beliefs, and so essentially, it was a country that was founded on the supremacy of one particular group, and not necessarily included um, everybody, everybody else. So it, it's all it, it, it um, impacts upon like our, our family, our friends, our churches, our sports groups, stuff we see in the news, the stuff we see um, reading books, the stuff in television uh, and music, right? So that's our socialization. So it's not necessarily one that we are uh, agreed <laughs> when we were born that, that we are going to partake and participate in it, right? But it, it's regardless, that's the facts that we are living in that particular society and it doesn't necessarily benefit all of us. Uh, I think uh, part of Australian history that a lot of people not necessarily forget but probably ignore was I think it was, was it the late, up until the late 60s, the Aboriginal people were 
not even like legally in yep. legal documents, yep. not recognised as people. They yep. they came under a flora and fauna yep. act. Nineteen sixty nine, and so there's 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 quite a few conversations about is that actually stated anywhere, or is that well? Mm. The point is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't included in the constitution, and so therefore we had no rights and no legal standing. Mm. We basically didn't necessarily exist. So if we weren't necessarily the flora and fauna. Um, we weren't necessarily those, we weren't necessarily included in, in society. So mm. I, I know there is a bit of conflicting views and narratives about that. So the date was 1969, and that was a referendum that was held in Australia. It's one of the few referendums where I think over 90% of Australians voted to include Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, as uh, a part of a part of um, the citizenship. Mm. Mm. Because I think that, like, 1969, that's not long ago. Like, most people who are listening, like, your parents yeah. were probably My parents were born in 1964. Around. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's not that long so, ago. Like, so, like, when, had- when we look at <laughs> stigma and that kind of stuff carrying across mm. for long periods of time, like, yeah. this is, there, there are people you can go and talk to talk right to. now that were probably that's voted right. in that they referendum. In that referendum, that were alive in that time. Yeah, and so it's really not long ago. Not long ago at all. And so... If you think about like the time that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had a part to be a part of Australian society, it's only a few decades. Hmm. And so the permeation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across all sort of aspects and spectrums of life is still ongoing. So um, it, it's only gonna it's only gonna continue to grow. And so it's a it's a fantastic opportunity there. Um, as we're growing within multiculturalism and we're getting much more people coming into the country than we do have people being born in this country, it's stuff that we should we should um, have conversations about and, and unpack and, and work with. 1967 or oh, 1969, mm-hmm. sorry, obviously that's, that's after, I guess, OT rolled out in mm-hmm. Australia. Yep. So a yeah. lot of our profession... In Australia, the, the I guess the founding documents, those sorts of things where the profession was, I guess, more formalised in Australia happened before yep. Aboriginal people were recognised yeah. legally yeah. as yeah. citizens. Yeah, exactly. And so you, think, you, you think about... Do you see that as yeah. having an effect? Yeah, absolutely. So think about what would have been, if we're talking about like the education, if we're talking about the, it's embedded in our complete socialisation, as we're growing up and our entire way of operating, right? Obviously, that's going to have an effect. Um, so what were those people uh, talking about, having conversations about who were included in those conversations, who were not included in those conversations when that was created? And so if you think about the fact that, like, our um, profession of occupational therapy was created as a response to um, some of the what we now understand as post-traumatic stress um, from war, basically, and if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't necessarily... Um, were, sorry, were and have participated in every single Australian conflict throughout um, the creation of this country, then mm. we could have been serving and could have been helping those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to start the healing process, to start the healing journey. And so that post-traumatic stress that would have these um, men and women who would have came back with, we probably, due to the societal structure at that time, didn't provide that service to those men and women. And so you've got post-traumatic stress mm. sort of carrying on and you've got intergenerational trauma, which we have evidence, evidence on now. And so yeah, yeah. not only in our creation of our, our um, 
profession, but also in the way that who you're servicing and who you're not servicing at that point in time. And there, there may have been people that were um, trying to um, help these Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people at that point in time, but societal structure then probably wouldn't enable them to be able to do that as best as they wanted to. Yeah, it would have been probably not not resourced at all if if very limited or mm. and there mm-hmm. wouldn't have been a whole lot of support, I would imagine. Yeah. Yep. Yep, exactly. And so it's not just necessarily go, oh, look at this point in time and yeah, this. Um, throughout history, you've always got examples of people that fought against this um, sense of injustice. And so it's not enough to sort of go, oh, that was just reflective of their, um, that point in time and the societal mm-hmm. values. There's always examples of people that were there at that time saying, no, this is not right. And throughout history, you can always pull out these individuals. So um, we can't necessarily justify it as, oh, yeah, that was just that point in time. It's like, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> and it's often only in hindsight. Then, mm-hmm. sort of, I guess, after a major change has happened, that mm-hmm. then those people are actually, yeah, I guess, properly recognised for, for what they did. Mm, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask Jody. So, Jody, you've you've worked a lot uh, with Indigenous communities throughout your career. Have you seen, or do you do you recognise? Uh, I guess where some of these differences maybe in how health services are delivered or how they've been designed to be delivered uh, to Indigenous yeah, communities? Yeah, absolutely, Brooke. And I suppose just to um, I suppose preface anything is that I have learned a hell of a lot more about myself than I have about other groups of people in, in working in that space. Um, so I suppose I worked for 10 years in an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, health program, which was government-funded, and um, had the opportunity to travel to um, lots of remote communities, which was an absolute privilege, and um, and seeing how health services differ and, and not just geographically, I think that that's a really important point, is it's not just about um, a community's remoteness that can prevent service accessibility. It's also that services, even in, in big regional centres and in the cities, can be inaccessible because of the ongoing impacts of colonisation. So whether people might have had experiences in going to the health service where they don't feel like their culture is valued, they don't they don't see their culture as a strength in, in being able to first find the right service for them and then be able to feel comfy and, and comfortable um, in going to a particular service. So... Um, yes, definitely there are, you know, in, in seeing it across a lot of different um, towns and, and cities that, you know, people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our country don't have the same access to uh, the government services because of a whole range of um, of issues which have been well researched, but also um, it, it, it's sort of, it has a structural overarching um impact that will take a lot longer to resolve but also there are individuals within those health services who either serve to really um, provide the most culturally responsive services that they can at that point in time within the system that they work within but there are also people within those services who um, 
haven't thought about how they might provide services differently or better to someone who comes from a different cultural background to them if they're part of a socially dominant culture. The So in Australia, we, we have a, a program uh, called Closing the Gap, and I know Terapa has uh, views on the name of it because I remember him talking about it in Sydney, mm-hmm. but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but I guess the the... I guess what I see as the positives of that program is that there are health discrepancies between Western population and an indigenous population that this program is, for better or worse, however it's designed, trying to adjust for. Do you think... So for, for me, I guess what I'm trying to say is for me... That's almost a, a very sort of compensatory model of of health in that oh this is this team's lower than this team so we'll put more resource into it again probably not done as well as it could be to try and bring them up to where this team is mm-hmm. that assumption that this team is right <laughs> and that this is the measure of success yeah. that we need to get everyone up to whether indigenous or wh- whoever yeah yeah. That, to me, in reflection after your presentation in Sydney, seemed very much like um, part of that colonised mm. thinking. I guess they're mm. almost like we're right and everyone needs to get to here. Mm. I was going to throw to Jody first. Is that in the health services that you've worked in, Does that is that the way that that program is, I guess, seen by the people that you're working with or are they how, – how is that taken by them? As in the closing the gap program, yeah. Um, I guess I guess what I'm thinking, like my my perception now of the like this is where the the goalposts are put, and we have to try and get everyone to there. Is that viewed like that within the communities? Uh, I don't know that on the ground that um, the community members that I spoke with who are engaging with health services really would be thinking a lot about mm. the Close the Gap program. Um, mm. And that's not to say that, as you said, it doesn't have value in that, you know, there's obviously mm. some really important aspects of that provided that the leadership is is um, is representative of the people that the program's informing. So, uh, yeah, on the ground I don't really remember lots of community members talking to me about Closing the Gap and, and the the nuances of, of that program. I suppose what people would talk to me about is, um, uh, who are you? <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> what are you mm-hmm. doing here? Taking the time to, to build authentic relationships and trust with people, um, going back and going back again and going back again. And I think that that was, that was probably what the, the word on the street was more about if you're a, if you're not from this community, whether you were um, a white Australian, someone else, or, or even a person, an Aboriginal Torres Strait person from another community, taking the time to authentically build relationships and um, and build trust, and and do that alongside the people that we were working with, um, and and really listening to what the needs of the community were so as an occupational therapist trying to not go in there um as you know i'm i'm jody and and i'm an occupational therapist i was really i was just jody and my planning would be through the lens of an occupational therapist 
my delivery would be through therapeutic use of self as an occupational therapist. But and then I would reflect as an OT. But the importance to the people on the ground was that that I was Jody. I was listening. I was learning, and I was responding. Um, so in terms of the bigger overarching frameworks like close the gap or mm. closing the gap, so, so and and again, there's you know differences in in what those terminologies mean in different states of Australia. So yeah, I can't really go into into detail so, about yeah closing the gap because it it didn't really come into um, the conversations that I had with people on the ground. So I guess what what it, what that sounds like to me is from a systemic point of view, we're trying to deliver two different levels of healthcare to bring everyone to the same level. But what you've just described, I would do with any community that I was going into. Like it doesn't sound like you were doing anything. Maybe you know. Time-wise, it might take a little bit longer in some communities than others, but building genuine relationships and listening to the people and using your therapeutic use of self is something that sounds like you would do with anyone, no matter who you are with. It sounds like something people should be doing with everyone they work with, yes. Um, however, our westernised thinking about what goals should look like, what um, what mode or um, therapeutic delivery that you are going to use is all very much framed by our own um, cultural lens. And mm-hmm. I suppose that um, sometimes we don't realise the inherent biases that we are coming with. So even if you you are authentically trying to be listened and and are trying to be listened, trying to be present and to listen to the people that you're working with, you will still be filtering what you're hearing through a lens that, for me, belongs and is situated in a white middle-class upbringing. And so being able to listen and, um, and understand without judgment to things that might be really surprising about different ways that people um, parent or different ways that children grow up in the community, uh, just just differences and not, neither is right or wrong but just understanding my own perspectives in that and what to do with those perspectives and to sometimes be honest in in saying, oh, that's different to, you know, mm. to the way I grew up. Can you explain mm. that a little bit more so that there's a, a sense of um, I'm not an expert, I'm not an expert on your child, I'm not an expert on mm. your community by any stretch of the imagination. I'm an expert of myself and if we can have a conversation about those, then we can get to a point of working together and, and trying to address the inherent power imbalances that mm. come with not only being a therapist, but for me, being a white therapist going into a community that has had potentially decades and decades of other white people come in and mm. try and not work alongside, but work to or upon a group of people and I think that um, certainly when I started I didn't realise the level of unpacking that I would have to do and continue to do 
to be able to try and, you know, and and provide those um, client-centred services and mm. consider, you know, what occupation and what occupational therapy means in communities that might not be familiar with OTs and and also, as um, Tirit Pao alluded to earlier, and I'm not sure if that's going to be part of this conversation, but around what does the, you know, what some of the um, the language of our profession obviously mm. belongs to or has been developed by um, a certain group of people, namely those in the socially dominant culture. So what, how do I need to be mindful of the language that I use, not only in terms of some communities where English won't be the first language, but also in the language that um, of our profession that inherently biases, um, you know, a socially dominant culture. Mm. So just jumping in there, right, Jodie, you, um, um, we're talking about this process of um, having to critically reflect. And so because we created um, this society that, that has this unmentioned um, sort of um, racial hierarchy and structure, right, as well as all the gender structure, hierarchy structures and stuff like that, we, we don't necessarily name these things. And so mm. we don't then, um, we fall under the assumption that everybody is just like us and we're just this one big homogenous group. And so therefore what works for me will work for you. So, um, and that's where our biases come, in, come into play. And we all have biases, just like it's just a part of being, being human. But the way that we enforce inequity is then when we enforce that this um, false narrative of being uh, um um, just like everybody else, and and then we um, further um, uh, try and enact these things that are going to be um, that we think is going to be useful for this group of people over here. And so, what we're doing there is just creating further further barriers. We're not removing any of these barriers. Um, we're going to be much less motivated to move them because we don't understand why. And so, mm. um, and we feel entitled to like, oh, why isn't this working? Well, this must be working because it's a problem with those people over there. Mm. It's like, well, no, we, we need to go back and reflect on critically why we make the decisions that we make, um, why we go about doing the things that, that we do. And like you said earlier about like um, setting goals, what we think is setting goals might not necessarily be what, what a other person, person thinks. And because we've raised and socialized to be unconscious of whiteness and even to acknowledge whiteness as a structure that like is makes you feel uncomfortable because it's not oh, well um I'm, i've never necessarily done this before and i haven't individually thought um that i could um that i have perpetrated um uh, racist systems and that's what like um robin d'angelo in her new book um uh white um fragility and why conversations about whiteness is so difficult for the social dominant group of whiteness in this country right is because we have this narrative that racism is only an individual intentional act committed by people who are unkind and so it, that's that's not the case. <laughs> mm. Due to the history and the structure of socialization and how we create all this all this society in which we live in, um, it's going to be embedded in through all of it. But the opportunity there and, and the the freeing part is that if we think of it in terms of uh, a structure and a system, then we can do something about it. <laughs> yeah. And, mm. and I think, Tirupa, when I first sort of 
started to try and reflect on my own culture, being part of a socially dominant culture, the only, the, I could only get to reflecting on my family and mm-hmm. how I was brought up and, you know, what, you know, that I, you know, sat within a very nuclear middle class, you know, family. And, and so my initial um, approach was just in, in reflecting and understanding that families are different. And it mm-hmm. took me a long time to be mm-hmm. able to, despite the fact that it had been very, um, very eloquently written about in a number of OT articles mm. by our friend, Dr. Alison Nelson. Mm-hmm. But I, I just don't think that I was, um, I was ready or that I, um, not about being ready, but I just probably didn't understand the complexities that I was having to try and unpack mm. around the, the structures and the systems that were developed by and for a socially dominant culture and that, and and I know that often you know, people will be like, oh, you know, I, I, it's either I I feel guilty or it's it wasn't my fault because you know mm. I didn't I didn't mm. make those mm. policies yeah. and processes. Mm-hmm. But when uh, when you have been part of a, a group of people who have benefited from the um, benefited from what's happened to Aboriginal and Torres Strait people in this country by ways that the systems and processes and structures have been set up for people like you, people like myself, uh, that's, that's trickier stuff to, to begin to, um, to reflect on. And, and I think not only, um, not only reflect on, but then figure out, well, what, what can I do? What, what's within my power and influence to be mm-hmm. able to start mm-hmm. to write a new narrative forward mm-hmm. so that these structures, these services, these processes begin to um, acknowledge the strengths and resilience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people mm-hmm. and to be able to include them in, in, in not only um, service provision but obviously service delivery, um, but mm-hmm. also in being able to establish well, what 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 do we want services and processes and to look like and how can, how can I, um, you know, use what um, power influence I have to be able to, to start to be part of writing that new narrative alongside and, and sharing power with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. I think there's a great point that you touched on there around that starting the the process and the journey and the, the uncomfortability around it, right? And then by trying to do it from a point where you can see that similarity and so the stuff that Richard Delgado writes about around interest convergence, that, that we do have converge on this ideal of family. We, we share that. We share that as a family sort of, um, we share that as a potential medium to be able to unpack some of these issues. And what does a family structure look like? And then what does mine look like in comparison to other people's families? And so trying to find those particular things in which you can sort of um, uh, find a supporting relationship to be able to, or supporting narrative to be able to go on that process and, and, and on that journey. Um, and it's a tricky thing to do when you haven't been taught that you need to go on this journey. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so like naturally there's going to be this, because we're taught um, uh, uh, within a Western context that we are individuals, we um, um, have subscribed to the idea of meritocracy. And so I have achieved what I achieved because of me when that's not necessarily the case. You have achieved because yes, you have some skill set, but you 
have been positioned in this point in time, with these particular resources, with this particular background to be able to achieve these particular things. And so um, we think in this completely conflicting narrative of how do I then go about that process of unpacking or readdressing those particular those particular things. And it's 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 tricky, but it's not a process that that cannot be done. And it's a process that is going to hopefully improve you not only as a, as a therapist or as a researcher or whatever whatever, but it's going to help you um, as an individual. And so we go on this process and we go on this journey, and then we sort of need those external or those external factors to kind of help us go on that or continue that, whether it's books, whether it's podcasts, whether it's people, whether it's it's um, whatever, because we, we haven't been given this reflective mirror to say like, um, oh, yeah, you look like this or you've got a um, uh, particular thing like this or whatever. And so we've got trying to create these checks and balances and balances for ourselves. So that process is tricky, but it's really important to sort of go on because it's kind of improved, like you said earlier, um, Jody, about your the service delivery or, um, or um, the practice or, or, or whatever, uh, it's it's a really important thing to even get to that point. And so for a majority of Australian society, we're at this sort of um, um, place where we're, we either kind of get it, but we're not too sure about, um, we sorry, we're either on the other end of the spectrum or just not getting it and, um, explicitly shutting it down uh, or we're at that place where we kind of get it but we're not too sure how to move forward with it. It's kind of like the existential crisis of environmental um, impact that, that we're living in today, right? It's just like, mm. yes, this is this big thing and it's important but it's too big for us to unpack. We're, we're not given the tool sets to be able to unpack things on a on a global level. It's just biologically we, we haven't been created to do that. So we've got to create a structure to be able to do that. And so um, we get this existential crisis moment and we don't know what to do. And so we're kind of generally at, at, at that point. And it's not until we go through and unpack and get those checks and balances and ref- reflect critically that we're able to go, oh, well, here's some particular tools, here's some particular things, here's some particular way that I can then put into how I'm going to go about doing it. I think that that pretty much perfectly describes where I feel I'm at, <laughs> where I've now sort of the veil's been lifted and I can see that there's this issue. And yes, I don't fully understand it, but I know it's there. Mm. But I'm like, okay, now what? Like, mm. what do I do about it? Um, and at the present, I'm kind of, I guess, trying to feel out the edges of where the issue, how wide the issue is within my own context mm. or within my work and my family and my, my own thinking mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I've been reflecting, I did some in your workshop in Sydney and then obviously since then about times when it's been really obvious to me and it's mm-hmm. kind of trying to, I guess, work out what the times when it's been really obvious what I could have done differently or how I could have viewed that situation differently. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, the really oh, probably game-changing thought experiments, I guess, um, was I was talking with uh, Michael Awama and it was in his workshop when he was here a few years ago. And one of the things that he said that I had never thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but he was talking about how the concept of occupation itself doesn't exist 
in Aboriginal, uh, I guess, the, the way Aboriginal people view the world because he described it as in the Western culture, we have a person, we have the environment, and occupation is essentially what happens when those two things are interacting with each other, whereas Aboriginal people see or don't separate person from the environment. Like everything's intermeld and everything interacts with each yeah. other. There's no, essentially there's no space for yeah. that occupation to fit in there. And, yeah. I, and that I was like, hey, yeah. wh- what do we do as an occupational therapist? Then? Yeah, exactly. The concept well, itself doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, so not necessarily talk on behalf of all Aboriginal people globally, right, or Indigenous mm. people globally, but just as a, um, uh, the concept that knowledges operate differently between different groups. And so if we think that occupation is structured like this and another group and Indigenous people, for for example, like think that it's much more melded and, and integrated, I don't know, personally, yeah, um, for me and just speaking on behalf as an individual Aboriginal person, the way that I was socialised is that, yeah, I totally, totally believe that it's, it's such more integrated and it's like a complete interconnected ecology sort of thing. And so this thing of this really rigid structure within a Western um, context of occupation is a foreign concept. <laughs> and mm. so, but, so if you're trying to, you can't overlap that onto this other particular group because if you do that, it's not going to align because the concepts Doesn't are fit. different. Yeah, mm. square peg, round hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because so, I think that was mm-hmm. that was one of the things. Because even our very most like absolute basic model, mm-hmm. like the PEO, doesn't doesn't that that work. separates the different components. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I guess that was a a crisis in a way. I mean, it, it made me think about how. Well, at the time it was a Kawa workshop, yep. so it made me think of how that could work a lot better than any of our mm. other sort of models and yeah. stuff with an, an Indigenous community yeah. or an Indigenous person. Yeah. It's a non-Western model. Me, mm. yeah. yeah, and it's not, I think, so fluid and so flexible it can mm. – and I, I think it – no, it wasn't you, Jodie. Who was it? it? might have been Alice gave an example of how she modified the mm-hmm. actual metaphor to be a football field instead mm-hmm. of a yep. river. yep. I think it was. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Yeah, I've never, I've never done it as a football field. I've definitely done it, done it as a very interactive river with groups of, um, yeah, with groups of educators. So, yeah, but, yeah, but no, no I not just a football remember, field. I think it might have been Alice, or maybe it was just an example that Michael brought up where they essentially the same constructs, Construct, but yep. they designed it as a football field. So you know, the opposition players were the Brocks and then mm-hmm. your players mm-hmm. were the, the Logs, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's a nice one. Because, yeah. <laughs> because um, football was something that that community, whichever community it was that they were working in, related to, like, really well. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, adjusting yep. for that. Yeah, yeah. But I think most of our other models don't have that yeah. but fluidity. Brock, that's a fantastic example of, like, how you then shift. So you're not necessarily putting this one Western structure over this other structure sort of stuff and hoping mm. it aligns perfectly, you're then shifting and moving that model then to fit those individuals and that, that, those people that it's going to affect, right? So like you're like – sorry, I'm jumping in a bit too early, but I, I, I think you were going to talk about how other models don't necessarily do that. Was that – yep, I'm getting some nods. So Yep. <laughs> so then that's around that process and there's there's – there's a small percentage, but if you think about percentage-wise, there's still going to be uh, uh, a decent uh, enough population of Indigenous OTs that are the 
knowledge holders and the, the, the potential leaders there to be able to create these models. And I've done various forms and iterations of that throughout my, throughout my career to create new models or different structures or different ways of, of doing service delivery. That is, that is, and so the um, theoretical concept of decolonization, for example, and so decolonizing a particular model, decolonizing an organizational structure, decolonization, the way that a service, service is done, or decolonizing individual sort of stuff. So trying then to unpack or undo some of that um, uh, colonization process and then how can we then operate and create either use some things that have previously worked well or create some new things that, that we know might potentially work well. Um, so going through that process for our own um, therapy or practice or research or, or whatever. Um, but the way that I guess from a generating and uh, like academically these new um, theories and concepts, it's going to take uh, uh, a process and time. But mm. if, if we have, if those institutions are operating on this sort of, well, these um, Western um, structures are fine and there's nothing we should do about them, mm. then that knowledge isn't going to get created. Yeah, so you yeah. can't even create the knowledge unless you're going to go through and unpack some of those previous, previous things. And I think the, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. I think that, in the last, I don't know, let's say 10 years, there's been some mm. advancement. But mm -hmm. in reflection on, say, the different trainings and stuff that I've done throughout my career, I still can't help but feel that a lot of it is almost tokenistic. Mm. Yep. So in, say, the health system that I previously worked in, there was, I can't even remember what they call it, cultural awareness mm -hmm. or cultural safety, so yep. some sort of cultural training. Yep. Yep. But then in mental health, when I'm working in an acute unit, some of the, the cultural differences that I, I still haven't got my head around, mm, yeah. it was almost as if uh, the cultural differences were used as almost like a, a, a an excuse or a pass mm. for different things. So, for example, yeah. I'll give you an example because that probably wasn't the best way of explaining it. <laughs> so, we see someone on an acute mental health board, they may have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, we see... You know, they're seeing things, they're hearing auditory hallucinations, et cetera. But uh, in a lot of the time when it was an Indigenous person or an Aboriginal person, maybe experiencing exactly the same symptoms as someone else, instead of we need to treat this, we need to work with this person, we need to blah, 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 it's that's a cultural thing. Ah, Essentially just yeah. we, we yeah. let it we let mm -hmm. it ride kind of thing mm -hmm. and we just hope it plays out or, yeah. or yeah. There, there were – uh, I can't remember what they call them. I think they were called cultural healers. I think they used yep. to call them. Yep. Um, that mm. were brought in to uh, essentially treat it in yep. a more traditional way. Yep. So, for example, one of the things that we used to have Indigenous health workers that I used to ask a lot of questions to because they probably they probably thought I was really annoying, but I was just really curious. <laughs> probably. They were nice. They were polite. Oh, yeah. They were always very polite. Um, but one of the things was I remember working with a lady. No, it was, a, sorry, a bloke who used to have a visual hallucination of, and I, I think from memory it was called the tall man. Mm -hmm. um, and the indigenous worker explained to me that this hallucination was something that would appear to people from that, from that guy's community yep. when done something wrong to the family. So yeah. the only way to get rid of that particular hallucination was to essentially uh, mediate yep. 
yep. that that thing, whatever yep. it happened. So the hallucinations were happening within the cultural context of that person's experiences. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I that kind of had always confused me. Like I understood that, mm. but it more confused me about my own culture. Yeah, like, so different. They, you, you've got this really in-depth understanding of exactly what that hallucination is mm. and how to deal with it mm. without pumping people full of medication and yeah, all that. Yeah, so different. And then here's us like, ooh, that's bad, let's get rid of it yeah. kind of thing Yeah. So in but, our own culture. It, it made me question what, what we do because yeah. I'm like, you guys have uh, – Indigenous people have this – much mm. better understanding mm. about what's going on and how to deal with it. Yeah, so there's a there's a few things that that, that come to mind there, and that's how um, one of them is around uh, sciences and the supremacy of Western sciences, right? And so Western sciences being the one true science that um, is mm. tried in quotation marks here, tried, tested, and accurate. And it's not necessarily true. There's there's many different knowledges that have generated their own iterations of science basically there's there's many different cultures that have that and so if you think about when western history of sciences when um in european um medieval times when they were coming to terms with diseases and what are the biological functions and what are this in um uh, across um down in middle eastern society they were treating mental health and so, and then you've got Aztec society there that were that were um, treating um, uh, full uh, public health um, <laughs> concerns of, of entire civilizations, right? And so, Western sciences isn't the one supreme science. It is a science, and it's a very useful and practical science, but it isn't the only one. And so, that sort of narrative, um, sort of where due to um, the structure and whiteness were taught as, oh, that's not the one true thing, or that's not, oh, well, that, that's not a thing. Um, and there was also talking about, um, uh, I guess, the differences between tokenism. And so when, when instances are tokenistic, it is because there's nothing grounded underneath. It's just purely mm. just a symbolic gesture sort of stuff. It's purely just at this abstract um, level. And it's not until... Um, so it becomes tokenistic. It's not until it's true symbolism is when it is backed up with action. There's 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 an underground process. There's a um, um, uh, there's you can see um, uh, uh, I guess a process of, of of an outcome. And so that's not to say that this particular cultural awareness training didn't necessarily meet that meet that needs. Um, but cultural awareness um, training is is a spectrum. And so because we're at that pre-cultural level now where we're sort of, what do we do about it and how do, how do we approach it? Um, it's, and the only thing you know, I guess, is the interest convergence sort of stuff that I was talking about earlier. And so what is it with the um, the reality of which I'm dealing with? And so for the mental health sort of stuff, what was yours? And so if you're teaching a cultural awareness level sort of stuff at, uh, well, here's the history and here's this, it, it's not going to help you to do mm. your um, uh, um, service delivery stuff for mental health right now. All it is is just the foundations. All it is yeah, is just yeah. this like, oh, well, here's so you know. Here's so you know some, some of that. And so because it's on a spectrum, you've got cultural awareness, you've got how do I get the knowledges, how do I then put those knowledges into practice, and, and how do I create a system then that has all of these things all across on a micro level and a macro level. And so because we're teaching cultural awareness to try to unpack the history of whiteness and, and its structure, Obviously, we're not going to get to the how you how you do it, how you do it right here, right now. 
And so yeah. this is the thing that when people go to cultural awareness, they're not necessarily, because they don't have a background or a reference to sort of put it in, their, ex, um, their expectations might not necessarily be met. They might be, oh, I don't have no expectations yeah, yeah. or oh, I don't want to learn how to do this or I want to learn how to do this. When we're teaching cultural awareness on a level where it's just, let's just put a reflective lens upon this historical structure um, and we're just there at that level, you're going to need an ongoing structure to be able to be able to get to that point in the mental health board and, and treating treating these individuals. And I, I think that's exactly I think you've just nailed exactly what was happening in those in those trainings is people were coming in with that expectation of this is gonna help me uh, you know engage better with people from Aboriginal culture and that kind of thing. And a lot of it was uh, around, you know, this I guess alternative to the westernized view of the history and it did provide that but didn't i think the 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 issue is the difference between the expectations of the Mm -hmm. clinicians going into that training and then you know what the training i think even if it was framed that you know this is a you know the intro course kind of thing Mm -hmm. and like this is the base level knowledge that we're going to then build on that even just that would help framing it like that totally because i think what what ends up happening is or what in my experience and probably i'm definitely guilty of thinking like this is it almost the the training essentially provides you with enough information to realize that or realize why indigenous people aren't going to engage in your system but that, that's yeah. it that's all it yeah. does really. so it, it it paints the background of the picture yeah but it doesn't paint the colors colors of the picture and yeah. and it's 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 not necessarily structured and designed to to do that and mm. so and that's where the expectations sort of sort of um, differ or the expectations that I don't necessarily necessarily get met and so it is designed to put a reflective um, lens and so trying then to uh, uh, you need to then go do further training so I do um, in the very little free time that I actually have I do <laughs> training called uh, cultural responsiveness and so it's operating more on that end of how do you uh, so I don't necessarily teach about the historical structures and stuff like that because that's going to be your it's your first year university I'm mm. teaching your fourth year university yeah. and so I'm you have needed to probably go through like, do your first year do your second year do your third year and then get up to get up to this and so I I quite open and honest and, and advertise it as that that we are talking about I expect that there is going to be understanding of those things. So I expect you to have a foundation. And so I want to be able to continue to build that foundation and I want to put some Mm. stuff back. So I don't necessarily talk about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, history and stuff like that because I expect that to people to already know that. But I want to have to have conversations and I want to have that um, um, uh, further people's thinking is on themselves. So if you've got that information and you've got that knowledge of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, might have um, um, uh, might access services like that, then how can I get you to think how you're going to get your service to be able to meet those people at that point, at that point in time? And so I think there is this um, thought process for a lot of um, um, not just occupational therapists but for a lot of people doing these trainings that is going to be the be-all and end-all answer. And it's not. It's just your first year. <laughs> it's just your first year of university. It's not yep. your fourth year. But yeah, you yeah. have to get to to that process. Yeah. And Jody, did you, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I was just probably going to add on to that because Tirupa and I yarn a lot. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, I've also been to those um, government trainings. And and absolutely, like when I first started, I went to that, you know, went to that cultural awareness training and walked out and went, how have I been an OT for this many years, having been through school, high school and then university how is this just the first time that I'm, you know, um, learning and understanding the impacts of colonisation on Aboriginal and Torres Strait people's health and wellbeing? Mm. Um, and I know that there are shifting sands, particularly, you know, it's really nice that I see, um, you know, in my kids' daycare centre that they are engaging and partnering with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander consultants to look at how they can support little people's development of understanding um, the strengths and resiliencies and all the, and celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and acknowledging the first people of our country. And, and so there's, that's really excellent. But as, a, as an OT who I'm not, you know, I'm not a dinosaur, I'm not too old, um, you know, I graduated. <laughs> graduated You're like, the only one that says that. Hey? <laughs> no one else thinks that. I don't you. know, but I, I think that, you know, it, it, that, I mean, people can't see how young and vibrant I look because it's a podcast box. Yeah, yeah, fair. Um, I'll put a picture up. But I think that, you know, I I graduated within the last, like within the last 15 years and yet that learning for me has all happened in the last 10, 10, Mm. 11 years. Yeah. And so my, you know, my experiences in school and in tertiary education didn't allow me to start this journey um, through with scaffolding and support that hopefully, um, particularly with the new occupational therapy competency standards that the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander OT Network had input into to really ensure that aspects around Australia's first people and culturally responsive practice are embedded in what we must, not what we should have been, but what we Mm -hmm. must um, be enabling our future therapists with. So, you know, again, that that onward narrative is is hopefully looking more positive with the universities partner well with the people that they should be partnering with Mm. to ensure that that happens. That aside... That's a whole other process, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think from an individual level, going to those those government cultural awareness trainings um, and Tiripara and I talk a lot about the heavy lifting that one Mm -hmm. has to do and often Mm -hmm. because growing up as a socially dominant culture... You, if you go, oh, I need to learn more about this, then everyone looks towards the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to do that work for mm-hmm. them. But what people don't want to put sometimes or don't understand that they need to put the effort into is that incredible self-reflection that you need to do to understand your positioning within the communities that you're working with. And so, as as Tripa said, that that you know those cultural awareness trainings are the foundation. They're like your first year uni, and then as you track onwards with that, it's not only about learning about um, the you know what's happening or what's occurred or what continues to happen with a different group of people. It's also about going inwards and continuing to understand yourself in that space and being willing and open to listen and learn and be a non-expert. And that's 
that doesn't, you know, that doesn't stop. I think like, you know, like we often tell our students that reflective practice doesn't stop. It just escalates once you graduate. I think that mm. that is, is also the case so that when you look at, well, what can I do with this information that I got at cultural awareness training by doing some self-reflection, you might reflect on your own, um, your own OT education, what was in there, what wasn't in there. You might look at do yeah, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people access the service that I'm working in? If not, why not? What might be some of those systemic barriers? When Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people come to my service, what works for them? Have I asked them? <laughs> um, what doesn't work for them? What about this service isn't, you know, isn't happening? And when we consider the social determinants of health that often impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, how can me as an OT in this particular space consider what are some of the social determinants of health that are impacting on people's access to this health service you know is there things around transport that are really tricky is it that you know that their family obligations um, might put their own health last on the pecking order because they have to you know um, look after their own kids or, or potentially extended family um, that that sort of lack of egocentricity <laughs> that um, that is such a strength that families wrap around each other might not be part of my you know my family story so they considering what are those other social determinants that really um could be impacting on people either accessing in the first place or continuing or having ongoing contact with a, with a service and and how you can ask Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about that. There's a really good point there, Jodie, that you're talking about around that um, turning the lens or the gaze inwards and it's so difficult to do that even just as um, just as a person um, that is a part of social economic group but just even just as all individuals like talking about and uh, ourselves is a difficult is a difficult thing to do and so we don't necessarily have the deeper level lens that's needed to be able to think about some of these issues and some of these some of these problems because we weren't provided that in our socialization growing up and that can bring up the defensive barriers that like all oh, this heavy lifting is hard and so or it's not making me feel feel good or or uh, or whatever and so this this wall comes up and people just like no no I'm just happy in this little space that I have for myself sort of stuff and then the work doesn't necessarily get done and so those barriers are normal to 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 sort of come up but those barriers need to be why is that barrier coming up why am I thinking that that's uncomfortable? Why do why do I feel like this? Because it's not until you turn that lens inwards and think about that, that you're going to think, well, that was due to my socialisation for this, or that was due to, um, oh, I haven't experienced these things before. Why well, haven't I experienced these things before? Well, I grew up in this particular area and I didn't necessarily have to think about these things. It wasn't necessarily, it was a um, socially homogenous area. And so, like, and segregation happens. It happens here in Australia. And so it's, um, it's just done by postcode. So, <laughs> um, um, so it, it, um, you might not necessarily have had conversations with people that looked and differently from you. And it's not until, like, people, like, um, within the Western context, go and do their um, uh, gap year, per se, or, and they get this, like, they might get this um, um, uh, culture shock. And that culture shock is only there because you haven't built up the stamina to be able to 
look at the other different um, culture that, um, sorry, different in quotation marks, that different culture that then makes you think about your own culture because your own culture is just thought of as mm. quotation marks normal. So looking inwards and doing that, you haven't been given, given these tools. And so there's a fantastic thing that I heard from an elder that talks about like um, doing this work is like going to the gym. And you go to the gym and you pick up a weight and it might be heavy. <laughs> but if you keep picking up that weight, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get um, easier and easier. It's going to get stronger and stronger sort of thing. So you haven't been taught the skills, but you need to be able to develop. So you haven't been – those muscles are asleep, <laughs> but you need to yeah. develop and strengthen, strengthen those muscles. You need to train that reflective muscle. Mm-hmm. Yep, that reflective muscle. You've got to keep training it. <laughs> so I think one of, the, one of the things that I, I'm quite – curious about is i guess what what you and this is going to be completely opinion but what you think the end goal should be because at the moment i feel as if a lot of services such as closing the gap and that kind of stuff are almost uh, in addition to the health service that we're you know so intent on keeping as is do you think that it's a matter of i guess adding all these extra services and different services or is it is it possible for us to say in the ideal world scrap what we've got and develop a health service that doesn't have those I guess systemic barriers for certain populations and can be applied similar similar I guess to say the Kawa model versus any of our other models doesn't have that that barrier and you can apply it to anyone it's not an indigenous model it's not you know a service just for indigenous people to, you know, try and make sure that they get equal uh, access to the health services that our Western model gives to Western people. Um, but a model that's going to be beneficial for um, everyone. Yeah. So do, do you think that's possible? Um, I'm always uh, – I, I structure myself, like, uh, in this sort of narrative, and a bit of it is – because it's helpful for me to be able to do the work just personally. But I think of be critical for the now, be hopeful for, for the future. And so the um, uh, I think it's always having that ideal world there, and this is what we should aim for. But mm-hmm. um, that that's just that's just a fantastic way to think in the fact that, like, well, now we need to think about the processes to be able to get there and what's going to lead us to that point. And I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that, like, we, because we haven't been shown this, um, the easiest thing to do is to go, just tell me the answer. Just tell me the thing to do. Just yeah, tell me yeah. how to do it and I'll do it. And that in there, like, it, it then stops the work from being done and people from going going on that process because then that just says, like, um, the barriers just disappear. All of this stuff disappears. I don't necessarily have to think about that. I can just think about the end outcome. But to get to that end outcome, you need to do the work. And so there's so many students, and I, and I get this from other OTs when I'm at conferences, and just people want to have conversations is tell me what to do. But it's not about telling you what to do. It's telling you that you need to go and do it. <laughs> and so you need to go and do the self-reflective stuff. You need to go and do this stuff. So, yes, keep the perfect world in mind. Keep the ideal thing of, like, yes, we're going to create this that's going to be beneficial to everybody except rather than just a few. But start the process of getting there. Jody, did you want to make it? Just a good, proper input that you can have there. No, um, no, I think that, yeah, reiterating the point of 
do the work. Um, <laughs> but I think also that, you know, within, within health services that there are um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander medical services and, and mm-hmm. um, primary health services, which for um, some spaces include allied health services. So considering where you're positioned, um, <laughs> And probably geographically within a service, mm-hmm. but also within um, your own cultural identity. Mm-hmm. But uh, thinking about, um, you know, what are the potential partnerships? So, you know, mm-hmm. if, yeah, we want to keep in mind that there, you know, let's, let's continue to build hope for an amazing, inclusive mm-hmm. health future. But for the here and now is are there partners within the communities that you sit within Mm -hmm. that you can work alongside with to improve the current services that you're providing or that your organization is providing and and reaching out to um people who are potentially better engaged with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities or the First Nations communities that you um that you're providing services for and um yeah, exploring what those partnerships could look like, which will help you to continue to do the work that you need to do in that self-reflection space, but also to pro- provide um, potentially and hopefully more culturally responsive services along the way. Mm. There's so many resources out there. There's so many books to read. There's so many um, um, papers and reports and, and um, things to be able to go through and read. Go and read Great. that and start that process. And I guess we're going into more the um, uh, pragmatic sort of sort of stuff. But yeah. uh, if you are reading that, really, uh, it's going to be difficult to engage with content that you're not necessarily familiar with. And so, um, and so, trying to uh, I guess build a foundation to be able to um, engage in that content is really, really, really important. So if you're trying to do um, biology, you don't just jump into biology. You've got to jump into mm-hmm. some of the basics, the periodic table. You've got to jump into some of this stuff before. And so, yes, there are the resources out there, but you've got to try and create that process to be able to go and, and, and engage, in, engage in those resources. Um, and I think this is that, like, going back into the social um, aspect of it is we don't have, have, that, have that process. Um, and being conscious of, yes, we've got this um, service that we want to do, or yes, we've got this research that we want to do, but that service is in an institution and that institution has a history. And so you're, gonna, you're doing this micro and macro thing at the same time. Mm. So do you think as part of that it, it's important for people to actually, I guess, try and fight? Because most people wouldn't know the history of their service that no, they work in. Absolutely. Do you think absolutely. It's, that would be an important step yeah. for people to actually, yeah. like, like a absolutely. starting point, I guess? Absolutely, yeah. What, what's the Know where your service is actually yeah. situated? Yeah, yeah. Know where your profession's history is. Know where your um, mm. service is situated. Know what your institution was created from. Know the particular um, history of where the money, the funding comes from. Um, who created it? Is there a picture on the wall of a of a um, um, older white gentleman on the wall. And so if you, if you go into various universities and you, you go through and see who the previous vice chancellors are who created or founded universities, who does that look like? What, what did that person come with when they created that? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Because I think that's, that's 
probably for most people listening to this, it might be where's that starting point. And I think for me, that starting point was at first finding, I guess, probably the most jarring part of everything. And mm-hmm. that's where I started. Mm-hmm. And that was the concept of whiteness and mm-hmm. my, uh, you know, even not making excuses, but my unknowing role yeah. in yeah. perpetuating this, I, this system. I, I, I and think that was the jarring part that sort of kicked me off into like, oh, yep. crap, like yep. what, how, how, did the, how did I let this happen kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I've been there too, Brock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I realised, yeah, because we're, we're taught to this is an individualistic society and so we, we're taught to, yes, me as an individual has this thing. Why, why is this like this? But that's not necessarily, necessarily the case. And Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a critical race theorist and, um, and has this fantastic um, TED talk that talks about this around intersectionality. And so we as individuals don't just come with one sort of blank identity. We come with a multiple of identities. You're a a male, you're a female, you're a parent, you're you're black, you're indigenous, you're you're whatever sort of stuff. Um, And so our intersection of identities then show up I guess, brings us a certain value sets and certain knowledges. And so my intersection of identities is I am Aboriginal, I am a man, I am now in the middle class. <laughs> so um, I wasn't always in the middle class, but um, but that's that process and that learning, learning journey. And so um, those different intersectionalities there. So I'm an Aboriginal person. So my Aboriginality um, has this um, complete whole history as do all my uh, my identities. But the way that that manifests is that as an Aboriginal person living in a socially dominant society, I'm going to have difficulties navigating spaces. Um, as a male, well, that might be a bit easier. <laughs> so, so, um, no comment. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's the where's the different, uh, what's the different roles that you need to play in the different in, in the different spaces? And so, as an Aboriginal person, I have a role in 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 being on the mic and and telling a narrative and getting myself in books or, or, or whatever, um, mm. making sure that I'm represented in there and I'm giving this information knowledge as my identity as a male. My job is not to be on the mic. My job is to open the door. My job is to call it uh, out when um, so when other women aren't represented at the table with the conversations. That That's my role. And so we have different roles in the various different intersections of identities, right? And so um, when we're coming to do this work, we don't necessarily do this work as an individual. Let's just um, do this work on Aboriginality and, and um, uh, address this inequality there. But we are addressing injustices. And so... If we see that injustices like the Martin Luther King Birmingham address, right, if we see the interconnectedness of injustices where we have multiple roles to do, we see that they're all, all connected. And so if one threat to injustice is going to be a threat to all injustice. So mm. as we navigate these spaces, we have to be conscious that what is the particular role that I have to play in this particular instance in this situation? So it doesn't become this individualistic sort of yeah, yeah. racism or sexism is just done by nasty people. 
I can yeah. be a perpetrator of sexism. I can be a perpetrator of of um, racism against other minority groups, sort of stuff. And so it's kind of being conscious of the roles that you have to play in um, where your identity sort of comes to the forefront. I saw a really good quote the other day that was it was it was ex army, but it was mm. it, I related to it quite well because mm. the quote was. I am what I allow, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. which is essentially where I'm sort of at uh, with this reflection process for myself is like, I'm trying to identify what have I, what have I been allowing? What mm. have I been naive to? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of thing. And I think that probably why that quote kind of resonated with mm. me, just where I'm at at the present in my, mm. my life and my career and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm. But uh, what you were just saying about the intersectionality uh, and the, the different roles do you did you find the like a almost like a like, well, not almost but like a conflict in roles in that say when you were at university learning about OT and there was like a conflict between like you your role as an Aboriginal mm-hmm. and a man and mm-hmm. etc. Absolutely, and what you were being taught, what you're being told as yep. this is how the this is how the world works, this mm-hmm. is how the system works, this is how OTs view the world, yep. etc. Absolutely, absolutely. That, how, how do people? Because I'm thinking it, the the that conflict between the roles might be a, a place because like for people to start that reflection, mm. maybe. Because mm. mm. I'm thinking from my experience, um, being highlighted to the fact that you know my role as a white middle class male, mm. um, it was having an effect. Oh, and the fact that I was allowing mm. it to have an effect or being naive to it having an effect on my work with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think what that was what was jarring me was that conflict between those two mm. roles internally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you find that learning or is this something that kind of in hindsight clicked over? Or? Yeah. yeah. So um, obviously, personally, when you are in those situations, like it's a lot of the work is going to be done um, uh, if you're not socialised um, um, with those particular skill sets or to see um, the other or otherness or anything like that. A lot of the uh, work for a lot of social dominant group is going to be um, in hindsight. <laughs> and so it's going, to, yeah. it's going to be until, oh, yeah, that felt a little bit, little bit awkward or a bit weird. Or, but going through that and going through um, university, and obviously the stuff we're talking about curriculum, right, the stuff we're talking about curriculum, like there's a certain curriculum that is being um, taught from a different from a certain perspective with certain values being influenced in it. And so getting to that point in time in my life where um, I – loved reading and so I had some of the tools to, to think about some of these some of these things and so when I was taught concepts I would be sitting there critically reflecting on how does that intersect with the various identities I come with and so there might be a particular and I guess that that is um, the concept around objectivity right that we're taught in university that we are objective and we have to be objective therapists mm. and we can do this well objectivity is and um uh, it, uh, not only a Kendi, but a, a couple of critical race theories talk about this. Objectivity is just a group collective um, subjectivity. And so it's objectivity <laughs> is deemed by those who deem it as objective. And so learning about objectivity in, in university, I would be, 
yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure. I was sore about that one. <laughs> and so I'd have to then, how does that influence my practice? Well, the way that I influence it and how I'm going to be an occupational therapist is by being conscious that I can't be objective, that I, I'm going to come with these biases and being how can I then set up a system that's structure where I can account for these biases? So if I, if I come in and I'm just like, well, I, I'm going to naturally gravitate to um, what is your cultural identity, what is how you're going to navigate and what is this, and the person, the individual comes in and they're just like, well, I just want some help with my foot. <laughs> then um, how am I, uh, yes, I'm going to account for, for these things and, yes, I'm going to go help that person with the injury that, that, that they have, but I am going to be conscious that I do think I do come with those particular particular biases and I don't want that person to particularly come back with the same problem with their foot when I realise that where they are working is not um, um, going to be helpful for um, supporting their foot. It's going to be like, well, mm. there's some work there that's going to have to be done to the, the workplace or, or something like that. And then, well, there's work that's going to be done on uh, a team level there. There's going to be work that's going to be done on, a, on an organisational level. So this um, um, um process there that i have a role to play on multiple levels not just treating the foot that has just blown my mind <laughs> wide open again <laughs> I've, ne- <laughs> I've never thought of objectivity like that mm. and it's completely true mm. Mm. I, wow okay <laughs> But going through that process and coming to these realizations, yeah. then now you can start that process of reflecting, right? And so after you yeah. um, uh, had this had this podcast chat, right, you're going to go away and then think about that, and then you're going to think, well, how can I then do something about that process? And so yeah. then then you've got to uh, go through that process and find the medium that works for you as far as accessing that information. Is it books? Is it readings? Is it podcasts? Is it um, YouTube clips? Is it um, is it talking with with another expert sort of stuff? What's the yep. medium that works for you that's going to get you the knowledge to be able to um, input on? Sorry, um, implement how you're going to account for objectivity now. So, wow. So, in reflecting on that, so every I guess objective thing then has a, a root in either a group or a culture or mm-hmm. like objective thought, I guess. Yep. Everything that we measure, which makes total sense because say, for example, in uh, if we're doing a mental state exam in mental health, there's it's meant to be all objective. It's meant to be what you mm-hmm. see, what you describe. But when you're learning about it, they give you the specific language yeah. to use it and it's not common language usually. No. no. Mm-hmm. That, that's... Mm-hmm. I'm speechless. Yeah, and, and I. <laughs> yep, sorry, Jay, you go. Sorry, I was just going to say, and 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 therein lies, um, you know, a conversation for a whole another podcast around, yeah. um, you know, the importance of dynamic assessment and 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 assessment mm. that, um, you know, for for lots of the standardised assessments that OTs use, um, you know, many, you know, are now developed in Australia, but many are not. So even mm-hmm. the Australian context is is not always um, considered in in that sort of standardised. Mm process um, and, and then when they are developed you know in Australia are they developed by um, you know alongside Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and therefore how valid and reliable are they 
and how do we enable our OTs in training and our current OTs to yeah. be able to rely on dynamic assessment approaches that truly yeah. value the strengths of the people that they work with. Exactly, exactly. And just to say on um, standard standardised uh, standardized testing, so the history of standardised testing was back in the 1800s with a um, statistician, um, Francis, Francis Galton, and so he um, um, hypothesized that um, there's a um, certain standard of intelligence, and this is where um, some of the sciences sort of help to perpetuate some of the racist sort of sort of stuff. And so he's got this book called um, Hereditary Genius, and in it he, he hypothesizes that the average intellectual intelligence of um, uh, what they talked about and the terminology they used at that point, um, uh, the Negro race, um, so those that were um, taken from Africa um, over to America for slavery is lower than um, the uh, white um, uh, race, I guess, at, at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And so um, he hypothesized that I can prove this as a, as a, as a, as a standard, as a, and I can, I can, um, um, uh, identify and create a system and structure that, that can test this. And so he, he failed in doing this to test um, uh, his um, uh, racist hypothesis. But there was another um, uh, French and, and English um, statisticians that took took this up, um, Benet and Simon, uh, sorry, um, Albert Benet and Theodore Simon. And um, they developed an IQ test in 1905 um, and was revised and delivered in 1916, and it showed enormous significant racial differences in general intelligence. So rather than just accounting for um, the, 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 I guess the nature versus nurture sort of sort of debates, and so the nature that these individuals were taken from, and the, you're not giving them an education, you're completely being um, um, enslaved and dispossessed and disempowered, and to to try and do a, a test to say that somebody who has access to books and to resources to be able to improve certain um, um, brain functions and to test these two and say, yes, now that's the, um, that's the, the difference that, that, that um, proves that um, this is um, superior. And so scientists has this history of this racist sciences sort of stuff. And so if we're using standardized tests that are based in this racist science history, then mm. um, we've gone on that process that, that, okay, well, this was a tool that was created at that. Is that history still in that tool? And so the, what we see that, um, uh, um, I guess, um, manifested now is that standardized tests are created with um, um, uh, children from a particular area that might be a um, certain class or certain access to certain resources. And we're putting that standardized test onto another group of children that might necessarily be in a remote community. That's not going to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> So, and that's one of the things hmm. I always I always ask my students whenever they're talking like I oh, like to them standardized tests are the gold standard. I'm like, but do you know who they're standardized against? Mm -hmm. Because that's that's going to be the big tell. Like if this standard this is standardized against you know middle class white Englishmen, and you're mm -hmm. trying to apply it in say an Aboriginal community or in with North Queensland, women. or with women, or, or with women, or mm -hmm. anyone other mm -hmm. than that particular right. population, you're going to be different. And what you were saying just then kind of reminds me, uh, 
and I probably t- touches on your sort of relative uh, objectivity we were talking about before, JD. Um, in the the fitness industry, uh, people talk about fitness and what fitness is, and this is fitness, and this is the you know people have an image of what they think like what is peak fitness kind of thing. And it's generally what, what most people don't think about is fitness is often sport specific or functional. So like if you're a marathon mm-hmm. runner, being able to run probably just over 42 kilometers it the fastest you can is the measure of fitness. Mm-hmm. Whereas for someone like me or someone who engages in powerlifting or strength sports, like strength endurance mm-hmm. and peak force output yep. is fitness, mm-hmm. but it's probably not often – it wouldn't be what most people would picture when mm. they think fitness. Because mm. the other thing is people talk about, oh, this person's so fit, and it might be, say, bodybuilding. Mm. But, mm. Uh, I don't care who you are. Bodybuilding's an eating disorder. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Bodybuilding has so many terrible habits, and I know people enjoy it, and they get a lot of other stuff out of it. Mm. But to me, that's not fitness. Mm. So it's, it just reminds me of that sort of concept where everyone, we're all using the same word. But it's going to be very specific to, you know, what you need from your sport or what you yeah. expect from yeah. whatever tra- sort of training you're doing. Mm. And so we apply that logic into stuff like that around fitness, around sort of stuff like that, but we don't include race and the racial constructs into that logic. We haven't done mm. that. We don't do that. We include all these other things which are relevant to our, our social dominant group, but we don't include mm. this thing as well. Because that's what, 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 when you were talking about that before with the um, example of, you know, those people finding that uh, their Indigenous people had lower intelligence. Mm. My thought is, well, what, are, what's, what's, what is intelligence? Because yeah. 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 my thing is if, say, you were looking at, say, a, a traditional uh, Japanese, where did I get that from? A traditional Aboriginal community living on land using traditional means. If you put me out there and <laughs> said, here, you survive. Mm. Like these people, struggle. I'd be I'd be dead in two <laughs> yeah. days. I yeah. wouldn't know, I wouldn't know where to get water. I wouldn't know where to get yeah. food. Yep. Whereas you know, over the thousands of years, that culture's developed that intelligence mm. in order mainly for survival, but to thrive through their process of science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they've had a hypothesis. They've tested it. They've tried it, and exactly. they got, they, then they then they built it into their structure, into their institution, their, their that society. Was like when I, was, when I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of shows, like uh, I think it was Les Higgins, like about Bush Tuck. I think, I think it was called yeah, Bush Tuck. Yeah, I love those as well. I watched them as well. And it was, yep. it was a lot of the stuff was, and he used to say, like I, you, you can eat this, say it's a berry or something, you can eat this, but you have to, you know, do all these different treatments. Mm-hmm. And it was like I have no idea how people discovered that. that doing it this way was poisonous. Mm-hmm. But doing it this way, you could eat it. Through their sciences. Well, mm-hmm. obviously a process. They didn't mm-hmm. just go, you know what, I'm going to boil that with yep. some paper bark yep. and then it'll yeah. magically be editable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, exactly. And and that sort of not knowing uh, is, is um, um, built, um, been socialised into us sort of stuff. So if we kind of... Um, be critical of, of that process and, and um, uh, what is it that we don't know and how do I need to go find about, about, about that process? I think, I think then we, we then are going through, we're doing our work in addressing racism and, and inequality because we're looking at purely just on a, um, 
uh, one um, micro level of like looking at sciences sort of stuff. And if you see the value in sciences that are other than a Western science and you understand that, then you're going to be much more better equipped when you go and talk to your clientele, um, talk to your um, clients or, or whatever, and you, somebody practices a particular thing and you can go, well, well, I know this concept around sciences and I see this other uh, value in other sciences and this person is obviously practicing something that they believed uh, comes from a scientific evidence base for themselves because it's got to come from somewhere. Then you can work with that person's lived reality and to be able to create a, a specific therapeutic practice that works with them. And and if you if you're not necessarily on that pro, on that process, you're just going to do what's the status quo now, which is, uh, well, we're all homogenous, and so this must work for you. What works for me, sort of stuff, and not working. So it's going to, yeah, exactly. So it's going to improve our therapeutic our therapeutic practice. And it's going to, we're going to identify the need for further research on, on particular things that we don't know about that is inclusive of, of other people's um, um, realities and cultures and sciences. Hmm. <laughs> um, I suppose just touching on the um, where we were before about some of the pragmatics um, and just to direct people to some things if they want to um, have some frameworks or structures that might support them. So um, in, I'm going to have to just focus, so in the Occupation Centre Practice with Children, a practical guide um, that was from 2017, there's a whole chapter in there on the Making Connections Framework, um, which is authored by Alison Nelson, Michael Awama, Christelle McLaren and Tara Lewis. Um, so that is a good, um, yeah, something good to go and have a look at if you haven't read that already. And something that I stumbled across through the Twitter sphere um, on the uh, odd occasion that I dip into Twitter, Brock, you know that it's not my it's not my forte. But I saw something interesting pop up on my screen, um, and so it's an article that came. Uh, it's only just um, come out, but it was on the back of, I believe, um, some of the conversations that started at the last WFOT Congress. And so the article is called Challenging the Status Quo, Infusing Non-Western Ideas into Occupational Therapy Education and Practice. So it's written by two um, two OTs in the States who are from a white socially dominant culture, um, to my understanding. I could be wrong because I read it last week and some of it might have fallen out of my head. But it's it was a really um, sort of uh, for for people who might have gone to that gone to that um, cultural awareness training and then gone oh you know what can I do? Um, it gave some practical examples of reflections of um, how these therapists have taken that that conversation about oh geez I didn't realise that I was you know. Um, I was contributing to the, you know, to the ongoing white Western nature of my profession. Um, and so, yeah, it's probably worth a, worth a read as well. So, um, yeah, that was my two practical tidbits. Um, but my other couple of things, the things that I've had a yarn with Tirupar about previously is just around, and, and he um, has always been incredibly generous with his time, um, for uh, helping me unpack various things and just pointing me in the direction of things that help to ex 
extend my understanding. And I think some of the things that I've picked up are, you know, what does your social media feed look like? Is your social media feed filled with other people who um, are like you and um, and have grown up like you and so therefore those are the messages that you're always hearing or could you look at extending your social media feed to include more people of colour, more perspectives that are more diverse than the ones that you grew up with and, and therefore you can often then find amazing things to read that help you to know and understand yourself but also give you examples of great practice in these spaces. So that's something that I probably wanted to just highlight as well. Um, yeah, and, and I think the other thing is, um, Brock, you just said, you know, you said a little while ago, um, I am what I allow. And I think what I've learned from that is around, you know, if you are, you know, if you are in spaces in social media or in, or in public spaces where things happen that are, that are, whether it's overtly racist or it's a, a perseveration of a systemic racism, um, type act or understanding being able to find ways to call that out in a way that acknowledges that people who are genuinely racist and are saying horrible things in social media which does happen uh, you know you're not going to shift that person's opinion by your comment but your comment could help people who might not have an understanding that what they've said is wrong um, and and your comments could help to take people from a place of, oh, I might agree with that racist dude to, oh, sorry, dude, or lady, um, but uh, to help them to go, oh, that's got some information in it that I can understand and connect with, so therefore I might lean away from thinking the same as that terribly racist person that I've seen on social media. And even just from other people of colour's perspective, like a voice in opposition uh, is a really, really strong thing um, because of the way that our society is structured, that if you remain silent, you're just supporting the status quo by your yep. silence. Yeah. And so for a person of colour who's scrolling through that, you might look at that and think, wow, that's fantastic. That's somebody who's actually saying, no, this isn't right. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of the issue, and I see a lot of stuff on social media because I tend to be quite all over that kind of thing. It was my thing for a long time. Mm-hmm. But um, a, lot of, a lot of the issues, not issues, but I, I think a lot of people are coming from a good place when they do try and, uh, stamp out things that are being said, but I think a lot of the time it's done in a way that is almost just inflammatory, and it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't add or it doesn't try it doesn't enhance the the perspective yeah. of you know wider acceptance and that kind yeah. of thing. So I think coming, I think OTs are in a good spot to do that kind of thing because you know we are a, generalizing here, but we are a professional profession. Um, we have the ability to at least learn and understand context and different perspectives and that kind of thing. And I think if we're able to, when we do see that kind of stuff, uh, frame it in a professional way rather than just, you know, don't be racist, calling people out and inciting a riot kind of thing. Cause that's not, that's not, I don't, I don't feel 
and again, my completely white middle-class perspective, I don't feel that's helpful because mm-hmm. then people immediately, and it happens in all sorts, not just with race, it happens in all sorts of things. Yeah. Happens. I see, I see a lot of arguments at the moment around like the yeah. um, gender pay gap and a lot of people mm-hmm. just are yeah. straight up concrete with their ideas. You're not going to shift those people, but there mm-hmm. are people that have, you know, sort of on the fence or mm-hmm. slightly not sure, don't have all the information to form a, a, a good opinion. So being yeah. able to provide information in a, a professional way that people can actually relate to and interact with as opposed to just throwing a blunt opinion at someone yeah, and telling and, them that their opinion's wrong and your opinion's right. Yeah, and people uh, always, I think the ability to have yeah. those discussions is, is what's missing. Yeah, absolutely. And people always go for the tools that they have accessible for them right there and mm. that sort of stuff. And if that the only tool they have is just to urine idiot or or, yeah, <laughs> or something like that, troll. they're gonna they're yep. gonna they're gonna go for that tool. And so, like you said, I absolutely agree with that statement. And like OT is a, a um, is a profession, and it's a it's a it's a group of people that have the ability to be able to access new information, um, analyze, dissect, and then be able to implement that that information. And so, if if you're going and um, Jody's given a fantastic sort of um, uh, uh, I guess tool set or potential knowledges that you can go and access, right? That's going to mm. improve your tool set. That's going to improve your ability to be able to have those conversations. And then you can unpack and, and, and call out those people in in a productive um, um, way, like you, like you said, Rob. Yeah. There's a few other resources. I'm happy to throw any links or anything into mm-hmm. the, the show notes if you have, if you want me to put any resources like the reference to that paper and stuff, Jody. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the, the books, and I haven't read it yet, but I just have just got it that I, you mentioned in Sydney and you've just mentioned again mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. is the Dark Emu. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I've seen multiple sources that it's a really good, I guess, starting point to get mm-hmm. your head around some of that yep. base historical knowledge yep. and how it's perpetuated up. Yep. Um, so I, I, I mean, again, I can't speak to it because I haven't read it yet, but I've mm-hmm. heard it from multiple sources that oh, it is a really good book. It's a fantastic book and it, and it talks to some of the conversation we were having about around sciences and other knowledge sets and things like that. It's a fantastic book. And, yep. and the good thing is uh, for those people that, like me, don't like reading books, it's also on audio. audio. Yeah, audio <laughs> That's book. what I've yeah. got. Yeah. So I yeah, will exactly. be listening to it exactly. in the car on the yeah. way to work and home for a few weeks. Yeah, there's um, <laughs> yeah, I probably would have um, definitely recommended that. And yeah, find the medium that works for you. If it's, if it's audio or or reading a handbook or mm. watching a YouTube clip on a talk or something like that, find 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 the medium that works for you. So I'd probably just add to that list. Um, there's a lot of critical race theories out there. There's a lot of people that write about decolonization. There's a, there's a lot of if you can find um, um, somebody that writes at a, a and I guess this is the stuff within the profession we haven't necessarily had the opportunity to develop some of these knowledges. And there's people that that are in this process, and there's people that have developed some, but it is it is um, minimal, I guess, or it's 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 not as um, uh, there's not a whole lot of it. And so reading outside of the profession and, and reading um, um, especially stuff around history or critical race or decolonization or whatever is fantastic. But I'd probably say two other books. Um, one, I, I think I've mentioned both of them, but one of them is Robin DiAngelo's uh, White Fragility and Why It's mm-hmm. So Difficult to Have Conversations About Race. 
um, that uh, I definitely recommend people for that. And one that's um, on that historical um, perspective and does talk about the um, oppression effects, but a lot about racism and how racism manifested is Ibram X. Kendi's um, stamp from the beginning. Um, it chronologically sets out how some of the racist ideas were created and implemented. Fantastic. I'll put links to all of those mm. in the in the show notes. Uh, is there anything else before we wrap up that no, thank you wanted you. to thank cover you. or throw a, in? I think it's a worthwhile, like, thank you for providing the platform to be able to have a conversation about this. I think it's worthwhile. No, that's, definitely. that's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for giving up your time and your expertise and allowing me to, to pick your brain. And, like, my brain is just absolutely exploding at the moment. So <laughs> I've got a lot to... <laughs> process and reflect on mm. um so yeah thank for both of you thank you for, yeah. for coming along and, and making this happen like yeah. i said it was probably the most impactful session that i had in the whole conference and it was the day before the conference even started so yep. um it's it's definitely had a massive impact on me so yeah. i'm just super stoked to yeah. have been able to i guess unpack it a little bit more with, with you well, guys today one day i might be able to do a keynote <laughs> yeah <laughs> That would be amazing. Well, I, I think it's I think something that's needed. Even sort of reflecting on, you know, our, our profession from a national um, perspective, like, you know, the conference that we had in our national conference that we had in July, mm-hmm. you know, had um, a range of, of panels and sessions that were um, delivered by our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander OTs. There was, mm. you know, um, so much more content that people, you know, were delivering that was supporting, you know, our, our services and uh, curriculum um, in terms of, you know, working with and learning from first Australians. And and I think in comparison to the, the national conference where Tirupar and I um, first met, um, where we'd met over a series of teleconferences over a series of months and then came mm-hmm. together with um, with a bunch of our friends to be able to deliver um, a pre-conference workshop that was, I believe, the only thing on the on the national conference mm-hmm. um, program yeah. that year that really was looking at um, how OTs work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I think that you know, in those few years, six or seven, six years between those conferences, there's you know, our profession is is stepping up. Um, mm. And again, going back to what Tirupar said earlier, you know, hopeful for the future because, um, you know, in those six short years, things started to, to shift and shake and hopefully um, that will continue to happen um, and, and happen mm. with the leadership of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander that we have in the country. Yeah. It's definitely. And that's something I can definitely attest to. Like I've been to the last, I don't know what, four <laughs> national conferences yep. and, up until this last one in Sydney, the the yeah, the content was very very minimal. I mean, mm. It wasn't even sort of mentioned. There was the 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 welcome to country at the very start of the conference, and for most of those conference, that was pretty that was much it. it. So yeah. yep. you know, I think it's 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 awesome yeah. for the the scientific committee and whoever mm. else was involved in actually making that happen and I'm hopeful that the next one's in Cairns. Yeah. So yep. um, I'm hopeful that yeah, well, perfect there, there can be even more. Yeah. So and, it's a mm, fantastic opportunity yeah. up there. And shout out to, I guess, to our 
um, friend and colleague, um, Mandy Stanley, who um, has been on scientific committee for many, many years. And so not only her, but many other um, people, I guess, going off and doing the work and doing the unpacking and going on their journey and, and doing the readings and, and stuff like that to be able to get it to a group collective thing that now we're, we see the value in it and we're going to do it sort of thing. So it's uh, some great work by some um, individuals to, to, to get it much more um, prominent and not only just there but get some really great um, breadth and depth in it as well. So, And I think that's one of the reasons why I was really keen to get you guys on here because I think exposure to the conversation even if it's something that you either haven't thought about at all or like like I was at the conference, hadn't really put a huge amount of thought in, but exposure to the conversation makes people think and um, usually thinking is a good thing for most mm. people. So mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully yeah. someone listening to this will take something and it'll trigger a, a reflection or a thought and they'll they'll use that that to their their best opportunity and and explore some resources and you know become a not just a better therapist but just a better, better person, person. <laughs> better human so, yeah better great, human great no thank you so yeah thanks so much guys I, I really really appreciate everything uh, from today and and all the the emails back and forth in the lead up as well <laughs> all good thanks all Brock good. thank you Brock thank you. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.